Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the second part of our three-part series on the 33 Strategies of War by Robert Greene. And today, we're covering defensive warfare. So, in part one, we looked at aggressive warfare. And now we're looking at defensive warfare. And defensive warfare is not a sign of weakness. In fact, it's the height of strategic wisdom. It's a powerful style of waging war and its requirement is simple. Firstly, you must make the most of the limited resources you have, fighting with the perfect economy and engaging only in battles when they're necessary. And secondly, you must know how and when to retreat, luring an aggressive army into an imprudent attack, then waiting patiently for the moment of execution, launch, and a vicious counterattack. We all have limitations, our energies and skills that are only going to get us so far, and danger it comes from trying to surpass our limits, and you might be seduced by some glittering prize and overextending yourself, but you might end up exhausted and vulnerable. So you must know your limits and pick your battles carefully. Because if you think about the hidden costs of war, when you go into battle with somebody or an event or any context, you've got time loss, you might squander political goodwill, you might have an embittered enemy who's bent on revenge at any stage they get. So fighting with perfect economy, you can outlast even the most powerful foe. All the way back in 281 BC, war broke out between the city of Tarentum on Italy's east coast and Rome. Tarentum was a colony of Sparta. Rome was this new emerging power. Tarentum had sunk Roman ships, and that pissed Rome off pretty handily. And Tarentum had a problem. They were wealthy, but they didn't really have an army. War was brewing, so they called on King Pyrrhus of Epirus, uh, one, of the great, one of the greatest Greek warriors of all time. So Pyrrhus's reputation was on the rise. He was from a small kingdom in West Central Greece, but claimed to be a descendant of Achilles and a distant cousin of Alexander the Great. <laughs> so he was, had a fair bit of reputation going on with him, and uh, he accepted the offer. In the spring of 280 BC, Pyrrhus set sail with one of the greatest Greek armies ever to cross Italy. He had 20,000 foot soldiers, 3,000 horsemen, 2,000 bowmen and 20 elephants. Mm, the elephants is that real kicker there as well. That was off Age of Empires. They were one, <laughs> oh, of, really? the, yeah, they were one of the best resources you could uh, put together <laughs> to take down an army. So I know all about the elephants. <laughs> Pyrrhus, he arrived in Tarentum, he, uh, which, was, which really worried the Romans. They're like, oh man, big old Pyrrhus is coming. Um, they, they decided that rather than letting him take more time to build his army and gather his troops, the Romans said, let's go into battle. The two armies met. Pyrrhus was outnumbered at the point. And they were almost at the point of defeat. That's when he whipped out the elephants. The elephants came storming out and the Romans were like, what the hell is this? They'd never seen these elephants before. They panicked. They lost control. They were running around crazy. And then so the eagle, I assume that's Pyrrhus' nickname, isn't it? Mm. Pyrrhus the eagle. He won this great victory. And this fame started to spread across the Western Peninsula. And everyone was saying, well, maybe he is like the reincarnation of Alexander the Great, just as powerful and just as dangerous. Although he won the war, he lost many veterans before the elephants came out in this battle, including his key generals. And before going into the war, they thought victory would be much easier than it actually was. Uh, the Roman legions were a bit more hard-ass than they anticipated. The Romans, they didn't take defeat lightly either. Immediately after, they called for new recruits. Um, they rejected the offer to share the city with Pyrrhus, and they decided to go to war again instead. So the two armies met once again, and again, the numbers were about equal. On the first day, the Romans, they seemed to take control with these fresh fresh legs, these new recruits that they brought in. But on the second day, Pyrrhus lured them onto terrain that was better for him and his elephants, and he overpowered them. And again, Pyrrhus won that next battle. 
He'd scaled to great heights now. He'd won two huge battles, but he still had this feeling of gloom and foreboding because in one sense, his losses had been terrible in these wars. He'd lost all his big generals. They'd been decimated, and he himself had been badly wounded and had a couple of arrows caught in his, his butt. And at the same time, the Romans seemed inexhaustible and undaunted by another defeat. So when someone said, hey, hey, Pyrrhus, well done, mate. Congratulations, you're kicking ass here. He replied, if we defeat the Romans in one more such battle, we'll be totally ruined. <laughs> so he's saying, yeah, we've been winning. If we win again, we're actually going to lose. <laughs> we're actually cooked. And this is where, of course, the, the now uh, known expression, the Pyrrhic victory comes from. It's this uh, a, a triumph that is just as good as a defeat because you win this battle, but it comes at a significant cost. Mm. So if you think about strategy one, what we had where you declare war on somebody, you might have a colleague who you want to go into battle. But the thing is when you go into battle, you might win, but if you win, you're going to have all these resources and these political um, goodwill squandered. As we said before, this person might be an enemy and, and you know devoted to getting the revenge back at you. So you want to hope that when you declare war on someone, it's going to be for something important and whatever you gain is worth the cost of war. Because if it's not, you go to war, you win it, you beat the colleague and it's not for something decent, it might be a Pyrrhic victory and it's uh, all for nothing. That's right. So strategy number eight of the strategies of war is to pick your battles carefully. Now, old Pyrrhus here, he could have avoided this downward spiral. He had intelligence. He knew he could have found out about the number and the ferocity of the Romans. And if he had known this, he could have cancelled it altogether. He could have turned back and said, now nah, you Tarentums or whatever, you fight for yourself. I'm going to keep my, my men and my elephant for another battle later down the track. But he wasn't thinking. He wasn't picking his battles. He just wanted to be the greatest battler of all time. Mm. And so he started battling. Pyrrhic victories are more common than you think in today's context. Let's say you've got some excitement about a new venture. You've got this goal that's enticing and we unconsciously see what we want to see. You're just really looking at the possible gains of what you're going to go for this new endeavor, but you don't see the costs of, of you know taking on a new project and all it entails. And the further you go and you're working on this, the harder it becomes to pull back out and rationally reassess the situation. Mm. So sometimes the best option is to rather than engage in this war and trying to win victory, maybe you're better off not going into war at all, saving your resources for a battle, which is going to make a lot more sense. You've got to understand that the more you want a prize, the more that you see that goal and you desperately want it, the more you need to compensate by examining what it will truly take. Because often if you see a big prize, a nice shiny object ahead of you, you're going to neglect a lot of the risks and the costs that come along with it. You need to look at the obvious costs, but also the intangible costs. You've got to weigh them up against each other. And sometimes you might just need to wait for a better time. You can always try something more in line with your resources at the moment or wait for another opportunity. Because remember that history is littered with people who ignored the costs of battle. The best way to fight off aggressors is often to keep them from attacking you in the first place. And now to accomplish this, you must create the impression of being more powerful than you are. Build up a reputation that you're a little bit crazy, that fighting you is not worth it, and that you take your enemies with you when you lose. As Mao Zedong said, injuring all of a man's 10 fingers is not as effective as chopping off one. King Edward I of England was a 13th century warrior king, and he was determined to conquer all of the British Isles. First, he battered the Welsh into submission. Then he set his eyes on Scotland and he laid siege on the towns there and castles and demolished all of the communities that dared to resist him. He was even more brutal with anyone who fought back, like your old mate, uh, Sir 
William Wallace from Braveheart. He hunted them down and had them publicly tortured and executed. I think he put a big old Willie's head on one of the, the stokes <laughs> in one of the cities. For everyone should just be reminded of what happens when you are when you mess with King Edward the First. That's right. There was only one Scottish lord who evaded big old King Edward, and that was Robert the Bruce. Mm. The Earl of Carrick. Cool names back in the days. I don't it? know about Robert the Bruce though. You know, if you got like fucking William the Conqueror, that sounds tough, or Alexander mm. the Great. It's but like Robert the Bruce, it's like, um, <laughs> it's like John the Stephen. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make. I like it actually. No, no. It, it rolls off the tongue nicely. I don't know what a Bruce is, unless it's just another another good bloke. But anyway, Robert the Bruce, he'd somehow escaped to the remote vastness of northern Scotland. Edward, he'd captured big old Robert's family and friends, killing the men, imprisoning the women, trying to draw Robert the Bruce out so that he could take him down. But big old Robert the Bruce, he remained defiant. He actually crowned himself the king of Scotland, and he said, you're not going to take Scotland. I'm the king. Uh, we're going to take care of you. Edward I, as was said, he was a bit of a warlord, brutal man. He actually died one day, but Robert the Bruce was left standing. So after that, Edward II, his son, took charge of England. So he was left to take up the war against Robert the Bruce, and he had left with him one of the most feared armies in the world. And compared to Scotland, England was far wealthier, and its armies were more well-paid, well-fed, well-equipped, and well-experienced. So with the best army in the world, you know, coming into the role here, you're not going to fear Scotland's measly resistance and their primitive weapons of uh, what, mm. what Robert the Bruce had at his uh, disposal. What Robert did, he managed to capture back some of the Scottish castles that were held by England. And the first thing he did, so he kicked out all the English blokes, he took back ownership of the castle, and the first thing he did was burn that castle to the ground. That's a bizarre thing to do. You finally, you've had this battle, you win back one of your castles, and the first thing you do is set it on fire. Mm, It's a very weird thing to do. So he's starting to develop a bit of a reputation for being someone who's very uh, unpredictable. Then all of a sudden, another time... Robert the Bruce and his army, they popped out in England. Now, no one had ever dared set foot in England. And these guys, they were pirates on horseback. They rode all over the English countryside wreaking havoc. They didn't go and defeat the, the English army or face them head on. They actually went out lighting all the crops on fire and killing all the livestock of England. And England, when they saw that, they eventually retreated out of Scotland and brought their troops back to England. And then Robert, he stopped this terror as soon as England left the country. A few years later, Edward II was like, oh man, we've got to get this guy. He really, he really tore us a new one last time, so let's have another crack. This time, the English got even further into Scotland, and they nearly claimed victory over the whole thing. But again, Robert the Bruce, instead of fighting that battle, he's like, nah, screw you guys. I'm going to go and fuck up your crops again. Mm. So he literally just left the battle, went to England, burnt the crops, killed the cattle. The English were like, what the hell, man? Come on. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Fight, fight us, head on. Fight <laughs> us, mate. Anyway, so the, what he also did then, he said to the people who he left in Scotland, he said, let's light up our crops, kill our animals as well. Because then <laughs> the people in Scotland, the English army that were fighting there, they didn't have any food, and so they quickly grew hungry, they grew tired, they're like, oh man, we're going to have to go home, get some food, only to find that their own shit had been burnt up as well. Now, a bit of time went past and Edward II, he's like, all right, we need to take care of this. <laughs> let's go back, let's go back to Scotland and take him on again. We'll have one last crack and finish the job that his father started. You st- you, you, at this stage, your dad's got this reputation and you're really just putting the name in a bit of shame, <laughs> I think. So Edward, he this time he personally had the charge. They got halfway into Scotland and found that there was almost no one there this time. Where are all the bloody Scots? <laughs> That's it. Edward said, oh, we're, we've, got, we've come all this way. We're a bit hungry now. Can we go find some food, find a few animals? So he sent out a few foragers. They were gone for days. 
All they came back with was one bull. They came back days later with one bull. So they're all bloody starving. They're all getting crook. And they thought, okay, well, I guess there's no battle here to fight. Let's go back to England. Of course, they arrived back in England to find that Robert the Bruce has fucked up all their crops again. Mm. And England has got no more crops, no more cattle. And they thought, what the hell is going on here? So Edward II, he obviously lost a lot of battles that were indirect to Robert the Bruce. And uh, when he passed away, Edward II, there was actually... Edward III eventually took over and his first order of business was to negotiate a peace deal with the Scots, <laughs> granting Scotland its independence and recognizing Robert the Bruce as its rightful king. So Robert the Bruce, he, uh, he, he'd won this encounter. <laughs> he certainly did. So strategy number 10 of war is to create a threatening presence and use that as a deterrent strategy. The uh, English... They thought, look, we've got the, this massive army. We've got the best army in the world. It's well-funded, well-trained, well-experienced. Well the Scots, they got nothing. They're still using pitchforks and shit. And they thought, we can take Scotland whenever we want. But of course, Scotland, even though they were poorly equipped, even though they were somewhat divided, they thought, okay, Robert the Bruce stepped up and thought, okay, we can't win at their game. So let's create something different. Let's create this presence of just being wild and unpredictable. So when England fought, they did not fight back directly. Instead, they hit them indirectly and they were strategic about hitting him where it hurt. He did exactly what England did to him and that was ruin their country. He continued playing this tip for tat until England eventually realized that every time we attack Scotland, Scotland's going to attack us back, but not in the way we think. Whenever we try to take down their city, we know that we're going to get a, blood, a bloody nose or a black eye in the mm. fight. So with this strategy, I think you can take on anyone who's much bigger than you, got a lot more resources, and if you attack them where it hurts, maybe you're able to win. Think about one of my early war games. I had one of my earliest memories when I was driving with my mum, and I felt like McDonald's every now and then. Have I brought this up on the podcast before? <laughs> I've heard sure. it before, but a long time ago, yeah. But anyway, you know, I'm a little kid here. I'm nine years old, and I want McDonald's. My mum's got all the money. She's the one driving the car. She's got all the control. <laughs> So my strategy was just sit in the back and you say Mac, 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 <laughs> Mac. And I'll just say that for like hours on end and uh, just poking at the person with the bigger resources. And eventually, she'd have to succumb and get me my Happy Meal at McDonald's. <laughs> but I think this, uh, this floats with this strategy, doesn't it? I think it does, mate. You've created a threatening presence. It's a bit of a deterrence. So I'd want to just... To get your Mac is to shut you the hell up. You'd be pretty worried about your kid in the back as well. Like, my kid's a psycho. <laughs> Go on. Definitely. He says that this strategy, building up this reputation, it's like becoming a wasp. A wasp, it's pretty small, but it's got a sharp sting. And you know that you don't want to mess with a wasp because if you anger that wasp, you know that you're going to get stung. Everyone around you is a strategist angling for power. They're all trying to promote their own interests, often at your expense. Your daily battles with them make you lose sight of the only thing that really matters and this is victory at the very end and this is the achievement of greater goals and the lasting longer version of power. Grand strategy is the art of looking beyond the battle and calculating ahead. In grand strategy, you consider all of the future ramifications of the actions you take and instead of reacting emotionally to people, you take control. You make your actions more dimensional, more subtle but more effective. Let others get caught up in the twists and turns of battle, relishing in their little victories, because grand strategy will bring you the ultimate reward, the last laugh. In 1967, the leaders of the American war effort in Vietnam thought they were finally making progress. They had launched a series of operations. The guerrilla fighters were elusive. Since the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army 
proved rather ineffective against the might of the American firepower and technology, the strategy was to somehow lure them into a major engagement. They were trying to trap them. And intelligence indicated that the Vietnamese were planning a major offensive on Khaesan, a strategic outpost. And a very good Jimmy Barnes song as well. Yes. The US fortified um, that position with 6,000 more troops, a few extra helicopters, but a major attack on Khaesan was nothing that they wanted to discourage because in a frontal battle, the enemy would finally expose itself. So they thought, okay, if we have a big front-on battle, we're going to win. They're going to come out of wherever they're hiding and we can take them down. In the first weeks of 1968, all eyes were on the happers of Khaesan. <laughs> <laughs> now let's cut that. <laughs> Give it. It's a good tune. Good tune. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> the white, so everyone's looking at Khaesan, the White House and US media, they were certain that this decisive battle was going to begin there. And finally it happened at Khaesan and it turned into a big siege. But very soon after this little engagement began, the Vietnamese, it was about to be their Tet holiday, which is the, the Lunar New Year celebration. And so as they did every year of the battle, it was a, it was a truce. It was a ceasefire on that day, on the day of you know, New Year's Day. Both sides agreed to halt fighting during Tet. So they'd gone for this big siege, but then all of a sudden it stopped for this one-day holiday. But straight away, on Jan 31, the first day of the new year, reports came that virtually every town and every city in Vietnam that was occupied, all the most important bases, they were under attack. It's a bit like a pinball machine, like the ball jumping, banging around everywhere, lights going up everywhere. And this is what was going on. It was absolute bloody chaos. Yeah, the Marines eventually regained control of all their embassies and all their bases. It was a bloody fight, though, and it was seen on television everywhere because everyone knew that this big fight had been occurring. Then there was the day off. Then the next day, they were straight back into it. So everybody really saw what was going on. So until that point, Viet Cong had operated the countryside and they were barely visible to the American public. Now, this had all changed because this was the first time their presence was apparent in all the major cities and they were wreaking havoc and destruction. So back at home, the Americans, they were told at the war, hey, it's winding down and winnable. We're, we're kicking ass over in Vietnam. But all of a sudden, the images and the visuals that were beaming back to the US are said otherwise. Hmm. That the war's purpose it was less clear now, and there was really no end in sight. It was also an election year, and Lyndon Johnson announced he would not run again for re-election, and he would disengage troops from Vietnam. So this, what is known as the Tet Offensive, was the turning point of the Vietnam War. And this is strategy 12, lose the battle and win the war. And uh, if you catch on, that's exactly what Vietnam did. They lost the battle in the Tet. It wasn't about beating them and taking over every city. It was actually using this battle strategically to win the grander war. For the American strategists, the success of the war depended mostly on the military. They had a better army, superior weaponry. Their goal was really to kill as many Viet Cong as possible and gain control of the countryside. That way, they would ensure the stability of the South Vietnamese government. And once the South was strong, North Vietnam would give up too, and that would be the end of the war. Now, the North Vietnamese, they saw the war very differently. By nature and practice, they viewed conflict in different and more broader terms. Using This is what um, Simon Sinek used in his book, The Infinite Game. In his terminology, they play with an infinite game mindset, whereas the Americans in this war were playing with a finite game. So quite brilliantly, the North Vietnamese had looked broader than the war itself, and they looked at the American political scene, where in 1968, they knew there would be another presidential election. They looked at American culture, and they realized that support for the war was wide, but not deep. 
and Vietnam War, it was the first war that was televised in history and the military was obviously trying to control information about the war. So this is where they realized that they could strike. The media was trying to tell one story, but with this Tet Offensive, clearly the images spoke for themselves, that it wasn't all that they were making it out to be. So using an army of peasants, they were able to infiltrate every part of the country. The targets weren't just the military, but they were all about the television. Their attacks on Saigon base was located at the places of the American media like CBS, and that's where they put most of their efforts, which were spectacular. And they knew that Kaysan was full of reporters who could actually send an unfiltered truth back out to America. Yeah, the battle wasn't about winning. Uh, They were doing it for symbolic reasons. They were attacking all the big symbolic places like the embassies, the palaces, the air bases. They were doing it not because they thought this is strategically the best thing to do to defeat the Americans. They were doing it because they knew that this would get the most coverage and the most airtime. Bloody brilliant. It really is. The goal of the offensive wasn't just the military. So they were all just thinking about the American public in front of the televisions back at home. They probably saw the protests was going on, how divided they were. And if they targeted them and the communication what went towards them, then this is probably the way that they could win the war, which yeah. eventually they did. Eh? It was almost like getting the Americans back in America on their side almost just by showing them, by giving them a different story to tell than the one that was being fed to them at the time. So all of us, we tend to look at what is most immediate to us, like the Americans did, taking the most direct route toward our goals and trying to win the war by winning as many of these little battles as we can. We think in the small micro level terms, thinking that you know if we can win this one battle and we can then win the next little battle, it adds up to winning that big victory at the end. But this is really a pretty basic, a very petty strategy. Nothing in life happens in isolation. Everything is related to everything else. So this one small battle that you think you win that and move on to the next, they're actually all linked up in the end. So your task as a grand strategist is to extend your vision in all directions, not only just looking further into the future and having that infinite mindset more so than your enemy does, and if you start doing this, your strategies will become insidious and impossible to thwart. So strategy number 12 is lose the battle, but win the war. The target of your strategies should be less the army you face than the mind of the person who runs it. If you understand how that mind works, you have the key to controlling it. Train yourself to read people, picking up the signals they unconsciously send about their innermost thoughts and intentions. The ability to read people was a crucial survival skill for Japanese samurai. One of the earliest masters of the Shinkage school of swordsmanship was the 17th century samurai Yagyu Munanori. One spring afternoon, as he was coming to his later years, Munanori was walking peacefully through his gardens, admiring the cherry blossoms. He was accompanied by a, a protector or a page, which was a, a custom in the the land of the samurai, that they would have a young warrior who would walk behind him with the sword raised, ready to ward off any potential threats or attackers. So Munanori walking ahead, suddenly he just stopped dead in his tracks. He had this feeling of danger. His intuition was telling him. He was looking around and he saw nothing to warrant the feeling. But he still had this feeling of these troubles. So he didn't know what was going on. So he turned to his house and just sat with his back against the wall to prevent any surprise attack from behind. After sitting there for a while, his, his protector said, Mate, what's going on? What's, what's what the matter? What, yeah. what just happened? You were enjoying the cherry blossoms and all of a sudden you just shat yourself and, and bailed. I don't know if he said in, in those words specifically, probably a bit more respectful towards his master. But the samurai confessed that while he was looking at the cherry blossoms, he had this 
this feeling of imminent danger. He said he felt like there was an enemy on the attack. But what troubled him most was that it seems like that that sense, that feeling was imaginary, like some kind of hallucination, like he made it up. Because he knew that a samurai depended on their keen instincts to anticipate an attack. So if Munanori, if he'd lost that power, then basically his life as a warrior was over. So suddenly the page hearing this, he threw himself to the ground and confessed, look, mate, as, as you're walking through the gardens and admiring the cherry blossoms, you know, the thought did come to me that maybe, <laughs> hey, this Minonori dude, if I struck you right now, your master, I could take you down and no one would even know about it. I'd be able to put this sword just right through your head and uh, keep moving on. He said he didn't actually, he wasn't actually intending to do it, he but thought, he just had that thought. He thought, I've got my sword. He's this old man. He's a master, but he wouldn't even be ready. I'd be able to take him down. Yeah, that's pretty normal. Everyone just, has those thoughts, I think. <laughs> just that thought. So, actually, Munanori had not lost his skill. In fact, quite the contrary. He was actually so sensitively tuned to other people's emotions and thoughts that it actually allowed him to pick up on those sensations of a thought a bloke had standing behind him who couldn't even see, wasn't touching, just like he was in his presence and he still felt that sense of danger. That's a pretty wild sense of presence and intuition. And this is because the samurai school teaches its students to be like animals. They need to empty their minds, centering themselves in the present moment and keeping themselves from getting derailed from any particular thought. And if you do this, it allows you to notice any slight tensions in your opponents or elbow or a twitch and uh, you'll be able to anticipate and understand where the next strike is coming from. Yeah, they're saying that you can like look deep into their eyes and know what they're going to do next. So you can just see the slightest flicker of a small muscle somewhere in their hand that is going to tell you what's about to happen. And so a, a master samurai like Munanori could virtually read someone's thoughts, even in this case when that person wasn't even visible to him. So strategy number 13 of war is to know your enemy. The greatest power you could have in life wouldn't come neither from limitless resources or with all these skills and strategy. It could come from clear knowledge of those around you and the ability to read all the people who could be your enemies like a book. And with this knowledge, you could think it's much more easier to distinguish friend from foe. You can look at the snakes in the grass and smoke them out before they strike you. You can anticipate your enemy's malice. You can pierce through their strategies and take defensive action wherever it might be required. The leaders who made best use of intelligence were all first and foremost great students of human nature. He rattles off people like Hannibal, Julius Caesar, Prince Metternich, Winston Churchill, Lyndon Johnson in his early years in the in the in, in his early career in the U.S. Senate. They all honed their skills through personal observation of people. Often, people seem mysterious and hard to read because almost all of us learn to disguise our true feelings from an early age. If we went around showing people exactly how we felt, we'd make ourselves vulnerable to malice. If we spoke our minds, we'd often offend a lot of people unnecessarily. So as we grow up, we try to conceal much of what we're truly thinking, so much so that it becomes second nature for us to obscure our true thoughts and feelings. It makes it hard, and he does talk about this in Laws of Human Nature, talking about the masks we wear. Um, but if we can understand and take off people's masks, then we can actually understand where they're coming from and be a much better strategist when we're fighting them. It's often emotionally exhausting for us to hide our true feelings. We've got this internal struggle trying to put on a mask to mask our true opinions. But as big old Greeno says, we often slip out signals of what we're truly thinking like a little slip of the tongue, a tone of voice, a style of dress, a nervous twitch, some kind of sudden irrational action, a look of the eye that contradicts what you're saying, or sometimes the things you say after a few drinks, these can often reveal your true thoughts that you're trying to cover up. 
yeah, day in and day out, people emit signals that reveal their intentions and deepest desires. If you don't pick up on them, it's because you're not paying attention. And the reason for this is simple. You're probably walking around too locked up in your own worlds, listening to your own internal monologues and just being obsessed with yourself and satisfying your own ego. So to become a better perceptor of those around you, we need to drop our self-interest and see people for who they are. And this is the only way you become more sensitive to their subtle signals and reveal the truth like the good old samurais. No matter how strong you are, fighting endless battles is costly. Wise strategists generally prefer the art of maneuver. Before the battle begins, you can find ways to put your opponents in positions of weakness, and then victory, it's easy and quick. So you can bait enemies into taking positions, but are actually traps and blind alleys. If their position is strong, get them to abandon it by leading them on a wild goose chase. Create dilemmas, devise maneuvers that give them a choice of ways to respond. All of them are bad. If they get confused, frustrated, and angry, your opponents are like ripe fruit. The slightest breeze is going to make them fall from their branch. I like it. One day in the Japan of the 1540s, we're on a ferry boat here crowded with farmers, merchants, and craftsmen. And there's this young samurai, and he's a bit of a bit of an arrogant little, little kid in many ways. He's telling everyone his tales of his great victories as a swordsman, wielding his three-foot-long sword to demonstrate his prowess at the time. The passengers were a little afraid of this athletic young man swinging his sword around in a not a euphemistic sense, like an actual sword. Uh, they, they feigned interest in his stories, but really only to keep him from slitting some throats. There was this one old wise man sitting on the side of a boat, ignoring this young boaster. The old man was obviously a samurai himself because he was carrying two swords, but no one knew that he was Tsukahara Bokuden. Yeah, his Bokudu is an interesting character. So he's just sitting there in the corner of the boat, hearing this young man going nuts, telling him about how good he is. And he sat there with his eyes closed in meditation. And the young samurai called out to him, you don't even know how to wield a sword, old man, do you? And Bokudu, he replied, I almost certainly do. My way is to not wield a sword in circumstances like this. And uh, the young man, he replied, a way of wielding a sword that doesn't wield a sword? Don't talk gibberish, you idiot. This young bloke had no idea that uh, Tsukaharu Bokuden was perhaps the greatest swordsman of his time, but old Bokuden, he liked to be a bit more reserved. He just basically traveled incognito, looking like an old farmer on the boat. He didn't have to go and show off how good he was by slinging his sword around on the boat. But the young samurai now, he was getting pretty pissed off. And he said to the old man, you know, let's fight, <laughs> basically. He said he, he said he demonstrated, he wanted to have a fight. He said, I can take you. You're about 30 years older than me. I reckon I got you covered. Bokuden said, look, I'm not going to duel you on this crowded boat filled with all these innocent people. Let's go find an island and then I'll, I'll fight you. So the boat went to this tiny nearby island and the young man is getting excited here. He saw how frail <laughs> this old man is here and he's doing his yoga and stretches to loosen up. And Bokken is just sitting there with his eyes closed. He's not getting ready or anything. And uh, so the young man, he jumped out onto the island and he was impatient here. And he said, come on, old man, you're as good as dead. Bokken took his time. He gathered his possessions, picked up his sword, moving quite slowly, quite calmly. The young bloke's just like strutting up and down the beach, ready for the biggest fight of his life, start throwing some insults at him. Bokuden finally handed the ferryman one of his swords and said, just hold this for me for a sec. And uh, he said to the young bloke, my style of fighting is mutakatsu ryu. I have no need for a sword. 
And with those words, he took the ferryman's long oar, pushed it hard against the shore, sent the boat quickly back into the water and started paddling away from the island. Now, at this stage, the young samurai, he's on the on the beach, kicking and screaming, just jumping up in the air. Hey, come on, old man, come back. We're meant to have a fight, aren't we? And uh, Bokunin shouted back at him, this is called victory without fighting. I dare you to jump in the water and swim here as the boat was going away. <laughs> the boat took off and that was it. Poor, uh, I don't know, like, we don't even know what that young bloke's name was. Basically, he just got trapped on that island. I don't think he was ever seen again. Oh, yeah. And uh, all, all the passengers on the boat were just watching this, this guy who was just an arrogant dick 15 minutes before, <laughs> now just slowly fade away into the distance, on uh, stranded on this island alone. He's obviously going to die a pretty horrible death there. <laughs> He's still yelling and shouting, saying, come back and fight, come back and fight. The people on the boat just started laughing. They said, oh, yeah, good old Bokuden. He's giving him a bit of Mutakatsu <laughs> Ryu here. Ha, 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 ha. So this is strategy 20, and this is maneuver them into weakness. The goals of this maneuver is to give you easy victories, which you can do by luring your opponents into leaving their fortified positions of strength and putting them in unfamiliar territory where they must fight off balance. Over many centuries, the most notable uh, ancient Chinese strategies of war, they started out with the, the strategy of the war of attrition, which is where the enemy surrenders because you've slowly by slowly killed so many of their men. Eventually, this sort of evolved to a second stage where the emphasis was not on destroying the other side by weakening it, but by unbalancing it before the battle even begins. So over time, it's moved away from just trading human lives for human lives to these indirect warfare. You could say potentially today it's cyber wars or trade wars where you're just maneuvering and putting pressure on the opponent to, to yield their swords and, and lose the overall battle. This maneuver warfare philosophy was codified by Sun Tzu in The Art of War, which was written in about 300 BC. And it was all about doing these things to unbalance the opponent. Like He talked about things where you can maneuver to infuriate them, like putting them in a bad position, you, know, you being at the top of the hill, them being at the bottom of the hill, so they have to fight uphill, or doing it so they've got the sun in their face and you guys have got the sun at your back. It's like doing all these little sneaky things just to throw them off balance. He's got a wonderful quote here. To win 100 victories in 100 battles is not the highest of excellence. The highest of excellence is to subdue your enemy's army without fighting at all. Now, if you think about the Pyrrhic victory where you're fighting 100 battles and you win them all, you still might lose the war. Here, you're actually finding ways to win the battle through other intelligent maneuvers without putting any other resources or you know people's lives at risk. So strategy number 20 for war is maneuver them into weakness. So in this episode of our three-part series, we looked at all the defensive strategies of warfare. Sometimes you don't need to go into battle. There's other ways of maneuvering to win the overall war. So in part one, we talked about aggressive strategies. In part two, we talked about defensive strategies. Next, in part three, the final part of this series, we're going to talk about tactical warfare. (music) 